August 6th, 2020. And it is August. We made it. Should be an interesting month. Are we going to go back to school in person? Are amateur athletics starting up? What are folks going to do without the extra $600 unemployment stimulus? Might get a little bumpy. Today's guest is a man you may or may not know, Chuck Jackson. As you'll hear, Chuck is not afraid to give his take on race relations in St. Louis and around the country, and that's why I asked him on, because I wanted to lean into what seems like an historic shift in our country. Speaking of, there will not be a member of the Clay family governing Missouri's first congressional district for the first time in 52 years. After losing by 20 points four years ago, Corey knocked down the House Bush moved on to November. If she wins, highly likely, she'll be Missouri's first African-American woman in the nation's capital. Three things you should if you have not. 2004, Something the Lord Made. When I first saw this movie, I did not know much about the blue baby syndrome leading into the mid-40s, and I knew even less about black cardiac pioneer Vivian Thomas, who teamed with Alfred Blaycock to make great strides in the heart surgery field. Ma's death is exceptional as Dr. Thomas, who eventually was supervisor of the surgical laboratories at Johns Hopkins for 35 years. I'm not doing this justice. Just go find it. Side note, Vivian's brother Harold was a teacher who sued Tennessee for discrimination, a suit future Supreme Court Justice Thoroughgold Marshall won. Crazy. Number two, hidden figures. Seen as how it grossed over $230 million, chances are you've probably seen it, but if you have not, do. One of my daughter's favorite movies, true story about how African-American women played a key role, essential role, in the United States catching and surpassing Russia in space. Really fascinating how we got into space, basically what amounts to working on calculator power. Check this one out. Like Thomas's portrait hangs in John Hopkins, NASA has a Catherine G. Johnson computational building. And lastly, if you have not, catch last week's episode with Andy Candy from Crown Candy. Look, we've had some great talks recently with folks such as J.C. Corcoran, Art Holiday, Emos, etc. But it seems like this one hit a sweet spot. On that note, don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening to this. That helps me get in front of more ears. Go ahead. No spamming. I guarantee what good would that do me. Okay, Mr. Chuck Jackson. Chuck's been a friend for a while. We sold together at KFAN. He's unbelievably successful for what it's worth. And I'm acutely aware of how much I might not know about race relations in our fair town. So when he reached out and said he wanted to come on, I thought no better time than now. While on the subject, if you know someone who you think would be a good guest for OT, love to hear from you. Either message me on Facebook or email otwitholiver at gmail.com. Chuck has a good way of getting his point across and towards the end, had a good time catching up with an old friend. Come on down, Action Jackson. Let's go to overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. Again, you look good. Thank you. I feel good. You look good, too. Good and healthy. You stay in St. Louis, or you still traveling? Oh, no. I haven't traveled much, you know, since this thing hit in March. Um, I've only been to California, I guess, twice. And so I shelter in, in uh, the, the uh, warm confines of the uh, Central West End in <laughs> St. Louis. All right, so let's uh, set the stage a little bit. We used to work together. We've been friends for a while. And I was concerned that, you know, I don't have a really good handle on black relations, African-American relations in St. Louis and the country. And so we went out and had a coffee. Then you reached out to me and said, hey, you know, for what it's worth, let's sit down and just kind of talk about some stuff. And so that's what we're doing. People who don't know who Chuck Jackson is, uh, where'd you go to high school, man? I went to uh, Webster Groves High School. Uh, uh, Frank Hampshire, I think, is the, is the actual name of it, but uh, Webster Groves High School. College so, educated? I am. Went college, to, you're not uh, just college educated. You're very educated. Well, you know, I guess that's a normative judgment. But, uh, yes, I, I did attend college in New England and graduate school in New England, both in Boston. And uh, I'm a proud Boston University Terrier uh, undergraduate. Very proud of that. And went on to graduate school across the river, Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. So, What led you back to St. Louis? Uh, my family from here. You know, that was a big part of it. And uh, I had the opportunity uh, with the company I worked for at that time to transfer to a couple cities. Um, my dad was big um, on getting me back home in the sense that he had this thing about, you know, the reason that St. Louis uh, isn't 
more progressive, if you will, is because guys like you, once you get your once you get your ammo, you leave and go to another city that's that's better, and then we end up with nothing. And so, you know, it's it a little bit of a emotional, say, partisan push on the part of our family, and and I felt that responsibility to a degree, and it wasn't going to cost me much in terms of money, and I already knew people here, so it was a convenient, you know, a convenient uh, decision. That was late '80s, as a matter of fact, early '90s. I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of things before we dive into this bad boy. Chuck Jackson has been extremely successful on the business side of things from the get-go and for a long time. What do you think attributes to you being able to rise above what a lot of other people say holds them back? You know, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I like the way you frame that. And I have to say my honest and spontaneous answer would be uh, very early on, I, uh, I uh, recognized the association between hard work and reward, you know, almost in a Pavlovian sense, uh, that if you do this, you're going to get that. And so my dad was very crafty, too, with incentives. You know, when I would ask him for something, for instance, he's like, why would I do that? He said, well, I'm going to do this and that. Okay, well, let's make a contract. Uh, if you do this, I'll give you that. And it started with grades and things of that nature and uh, evolved into a number of different challenges that, uh, that kind of helped me along the way. Uh, again, that association between hard work and reward is something, oh, my God, is something that I could never, I could never underplay. So how did you end up over at KFAN? <laughs> That's interesting also. You know, I was in a pretty successful career uh, selling software for 3M Corporation. And I met this gal who was getting all these, uh, all these uh, spiffs, uh, like concert tickets, uh, free limo rides to the concert with clients, uh, picking up the bill, having fun, drinking, and meeting the people backstage, I'm like, man, I need to be into this. You know, I'm with a bunch of, bunch of damn civil engineers, et cetera, you know, doing uh, some some rather nerdy stuff. Now, it paid well, you know, because money is a heck of a deodorant. But, but at the same time, it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as fun. And so that woman was in television, advertising. And I talked to her about it. And she said, well, you couldn't get in this because you don't have a degree. Uh, she graduated from Syracuse in advertising and, uh, and uh, at uh, Newhouse, I think, School of Communication. So she was, you know, she was locked into that. She had, you know, she was, but I wasn't. But I am, you know, I don't like people telling me what I can and cannot do. And at that time, there were only like, I guess, the five, you know, stations in St. Louis. Two, four, five, eleven, and thirty, and she's like, "There's no way these jobs. It's just not enough of them." I said, "Well, damn, maybe radio." And when I looked in the in the white pages on the radio, it was damn there two pages of them. There's a million of them, and and so I had a friend of mine was uh, Jeff Smith, you know, with Walters Golf Management and Jay Randolph Jr. And they used to do this golf show, which I think is still on, called Fairways and Greens, out at uh, Cactus Danny's. I went out there one night. I'm like, okay, how do you make money off this? Well, you sell the advertising. I go, well, that's what I need to do. And so Jeff recommended me to, I guess it was Kenny Allgaier. Yeah, Kenny Allgaier and Jeff Stone. And I went over and interviewed. And Roy Anderson, who was a comptroller, said, man, you know, you, you make way too much money. It can never pay you that. I said, well, I'm just looking for a shot. And they gave me a shot. And I think a draw of like, $3,000 a month for three months and white pages. And then I met you. And so I figured it out. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I got there. At KFAN, we're also selling KZK. Right. Let's say there are 20 salespeople. Yeah, probably. You're the only black guy. Is there racism going on there I'm not aware of? Oh, you're aware of it. That's why you brought it up. I, I'll, I'll say this. 
it, it was probably more than coincidence. But I also don't think that a number, like, you know, I didn't, none of my parents had friends who were in, you know, advertising sales. So it's, it's a rather obscure profession in that sense. It's not like a lot of people even know that opportunity is out there. To your point, there wasn't, you know, more African-American guys. I think there was an African-American female uh, there. But there's not too many even today. You know, um, as you know, I didn't stay at uh, KFNS that long. I, I started kicking pretty good butt. And uh, and KMOX came after me and backed up the Brinks truck and gave me a boatload of money to go over there. But even there, I mean, there was no one. There was hardly, you know, I didn't, I can name maybe three or four African-American males and maybe three or four African-American females that in all that time, you know, almost 27, 28 years that I've known to be in that profession, in that space. So is there racism there? I'm sure it is, you know, no question about it. Is there meritocracy there? Uh, yes, that, that's true too. You know, I was happy, or I was lucky to fall into you guys' uh, arms and, and, and Jeff Smith helped me a lot. Uh, obviously, Jeff Stone, Kenny Algar, I also happen to be Catholic. You know, I think that helped a lot, too, for whatever weird reason, because then they can say, what, you know, parish did you belong to? It just helped a lot of things, you know, come together. And, and, and so was I special? Certainly not. Uh, but I did look special because I stood out, you know, like a turd in a punch bowl. Yeah, I was black and a male, and I'm not that docile, uh, as you'll come to find out in this interview. But, uh, you know, the funny, you know, I digress, but... Just a funny reminder of something that comes to mind is, uh, you know, I went from KFNS to uh, KMOX and had a good career going over there for about two years. And then I went to Fox Sports Net, television, Fox Sports, uh, which was an incredible leap and uh, incredible opportunity. And one of my first deals was I got hired and we went to a convention if you will, a seminar, whatever you want to call it. Really first class in a carefree Arizona outside of um, Scottsdale. And uh, I won't say her name, uh, but a, a very cute uh, white woman came and sat next to me in this auditorium of 166 sales reps. And she looked at me <laughs> and she said, isn't this just incredible? This is disgusting. I said, yeah, I, I, yeah, I kind of know what you mean, you know, because she was alluding to what you just brought up. And she said, man, I, I just can't imagine in this day and time that it's like this. The, the numbers are like this. I go, yeah, I know. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised you realize it. She goes, yeah, I just counted. There's only 18 women in this whole auditorium. <laughs> I looked at her, I go, there's only one black guy. Oh, my God. I'm like, well, you know. I ran radio stations in Salt Lake City, which are Mormon. I ran stations in Little Rock, which are Southern. Everybody was nice to me. Mm -hmm. But when it came time to talk big bucks, I was not in the room. Did you have a similar situation? Well, you know, if, if, if something like that, I, I, maybe it in my early stages, you know, just because of my lack of uh, experience, that may have been the case, but certainly at Camel X, one of my first, one of my first responsibilities was to fly down to Louisville, Kentucky with my sales manager and uh, call on a big agency that handled uh, the Luke Hughes account, which was big money. And so I'd have to say that that didn't happen to me. You know, Clyer and, Communications. Exactly. And, and Glenn Clyer, as a matter of fact, came into the office uh, I was rather aggressive on, on the phone, passive, passive aggressive. And it's crazy because when I got there and said that's who I was to meet, the people in the office started chuckling. It's like, huh, he hadn't been here for two years. Are you sure? I said, well, he's supposed to. And then my sales manager was like, hey, wait a minute. We flew all the way down here and you said he was coming and he may not. So I'm kind of on the hot seat. And about 10 minutes in, this four-door Jaguar pulled up. And out came Glenn. Clyer. And do you know? I do. 
Do you know why he had the Fuse account? No. His mother and Mrs. Fuse grew up together. Isn't that funny? Right time, right place. It is, man. It is. It's crazy, though, isn't it? All right, so action as we get into this, man. We've, I've never asked you this before, and I apologize. Do you prefer African-American or black? Yeah, either one. You know, I just re- I really prefer Chuck, to be honest with you. Chuck Jackson. MD. <laughs> I'm not an MD, <laughs> but I, I do play one on television. <laughs> now, I, I mean, when it comes to things like that, people are very sensitive about, you know, names. When you describe somebody as is black or African American? You know that's that's fine. You know, I mean, I, I'm I don't I don't really prefer one over the other. You know, I I, I can't say. You know, I, I've never put any thought into what which one is more descriptive. Um, and so yeah, whatever. As long as it's not the N word, I do take exception to that. What do you think about today and what the country seems to be going through? You mean with the recent? Uh, post George Floyd, or in the last three and a half years, you know, with the new administration or the three and a half year old administration. Let's backtrack because I think the two are connected. Mm-hmm. Trump gets elected. What's going on? Well, I think you know, in terms of of comparing him, for instance, to his predecessor, uh, who was much more of a unifier and a person who seemed to to seek out unity, you know, in common denominators and that whole notion of hope. Certainly, uh, 45 has done nothing to, to leverage whatever momentum we had going in that direction. On the contrary, you know, he's done a good job of, I think the only people he's probably united has been uh, white supremacists and conservatives in the alt-right. And so, you know, the, 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 the dog whistle there is, let's make America great again. But, you know, the dog was, let's make America white again. And, you know, let's just take back over. And, you know, it's the whole notion. Uh, I, I talked about meritocracy before and the association between hard work or reward. Let's get back to, you can be a dumb guy. And as long as you're white, you can still get power. And I think that's kind of the message that he sent. I think that's articulated itself, you know, many ways. And certainly one would be the aggressive, the aggressive assaults, uh, murders we've seen at the hand of cops, uh, policemen, you know, um, against unarmed African-American males or black males. You know, so that whole notion of kind of enfolding that type of aggressive uh, behavior uh, by minimizing the, uh, the, the value of life of, of African-American males in particular. And females, too. This is a tricky question. Sure. In the African-American community, is there a thing or a issue that has really been hurt the most from Trump coming in power? Absolutely. It, it, it's dreams. You know, uh, the, the dreams and aspirations of my, my nephews, nieces, my daughter, have been significantly compromised uh, by, 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 by 45. I, I never refer to him by his name because I don't think he's worthy of me referring to him by name. But, but what he's done to disrupt their dreams and aspirations, whereby you know, my daughter's 21 now, and so, you know, over... 30% of her life was under a black or African-American president. And so when you see that and you see somebody who looks like you is successful, obviously it's a lot easier to have that kind of dream and I can do it type sense as opposed to somebody who completely comes through and says, no, you cannot. I'm going to do everything possible, you know, uh, both um, literally and figuratively to compromise that. That's, to me, been the biggest bruise that he's created. Not to mention, you know, the, the, you know what I referred to earlier in terms of unity and, 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 and just, uh, you know, people coming together you know, like they did right after 
the Civil Rights Act and, you know, the, the hippie movement and love, peace and soul and Woodstock, let's everybody love each other. You know, certainly that, that, that river right now is at a very low ebb. You know, um, there's not a lot of moderates, although the numbers are picked up, you know, uh, just because of the dysfunctional administration in place now. I think there is a rise now, even on the part of people who formerly supported this administration and saying, we can't keep doing this. This is insane. We look like idiots on the world stage. But you'll still, of course, have those people, you know, in their little cubby holes uh, who embraced this three and a half year nightmare and who continue to want that perpetuated. And I love it because you'll see it, you know, a sticker supporting 45 on a truck with a bumper hanging off. It's like, okay. <laughs> All right. And, and they talk about, you know, African-Americans and blacks always voting Democratic to their demise. What the hell is that? You know, are you, are you voting your wallet? Hell no. You know, so you can only be voting one other thing. And obviously racism is not a deal breaker, you know, when it comes to supporting uh, the current administration. Secure this answer, but truthful. Your daughter goes or went to the University of Miami, Florida? My daughter is, will be an incoming senior next month at the University of Miami in Cold Gables, Florida. Why is it more comfortable to be an African-American in Miami as opposed to St. Louis? Well, uh, if nothing more than the quantitative uh, diversity that's in place. You know, uh, Miami is obviously south. You know, it's in the south. And Florida is a red state, by and large. Uh, in fact, the governor is Republican. But they have enough of, of a diverse population, particularly in Miami and southern Florida, that affords people you know, the opportunity to be themselves. There's a huge Cuban population down there. There's a huge West Indian population down there. And so just by the, the, the you know, the, just by the, the, the diversity numbers, you feel, you know, more inclusive and comfortable. Uh, St. Louis is primarily black and white. We have the second largest Bosnian population, but Bosnians are white too. And until that Bosnian person opens their mouth, they're just white. You don't have many Hispanics here. You don't have many Asians here. You don't even have many Jewish people, you know, in St. Louis. Uh, even though it looks like more because they, you know, they, they, they probably resign to certain areas of the, of the city. You know, they're more predominant, you know, in the, in the uh, middle corridor, you know, uh, Midtown, Clayton. Precore, Chesterfield, as opposed to South or North County. But there's not a lot of diversity in St. Louis. And so comfort is in diversity when you're African-American. You do a lot of work in L.A. You do a lot of travel. When people find out you're from St. Louis, is there something they usually ask you about? Well, if they don't ask me about the arch first, the second question is normally barbecue related. <laughs> And then the Cardinals, you know, and then, you know, they, in recent years, you know, with the, with the uh, Michael Brown and the other racial stripe, you know, that, that, that comes up too. You're on your couch. You see the whole Michael Brown thing. We're talking about August of 2014. What are you thinking? I'm thinking somebody pulls a scab off the wound, you know, and, and where is this going to go? And where did it go? It didn't go any damn where. Yeah, that's what it feels like. It didn't go any damn where, except in the fact that, you know, you got elect, you got the first African-American circuit attorney, you know, elected in the person of, uh, of Kim Gardner. And then you got Wesley Bell as the first St. Louis County prosecutor of color, black male. So I guess those were two good things, but you know the backlash started immediately with both of their elections, with the influence of of, of the person in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You know, did it make things better? It looked like it did, but it certainly did not. 
that being said, and please obviously action, correct me if I'm wrong. It does feel different this time. I don't know if it's a combination of the COVID and people stuck at their homes and you know, everybody gets to see that at the end of the day, they really just killed Floyd. We have to change this now. I feel that it feels different than Michael Brown. You agree? Well, I certainly do too. No, I think you're, you're right. You know, it, it does feel different because it is different. And the fact that it is with Michael Brown, you certainly had some local and maybe uh, a, 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 you know, a minimum degree of regional uh, buy-in and, and pushback uh, to that atrocity. But with George Floyd, which was broadcast internationally, you know, the outcry has come from Mormons, you know, singing in support in Minneapolis to Mormons, you know, to get back to your St. Louis, I mean, uh, Salt Lake City days, Mormons in downtown Salt Lake protesting that atrocity. You just see so many people all over the world from Belgium to everywhere just coming out going, this cannot continue. This is ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. It's long been ridiculous. So I think the buy-in is, is different in the terms of uh, the quantitative support or the quantitative reaction against that, that, that tragic event. You know, I, I've said to many people, and I, I believe it, that if in fact that officer had had his knee on the neck of a cocker spaniel, Somebody would have pushed him off. Yeah, that, that, that kind of makes you feel sad, doesn't it? Well, you know, I've been feeling sad a long time. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think it makes a, a lot of people feel sad when they, when they recognize it. Yeah, that's, that's a reality. Uh, no question. But, again, I've been feeling sad a, a, a long time. Um, despite what you said earlier about, you know, being successful in this camp. You know, unless everybody's successful. Uh, who looks like me and has uh, the same access to uh, the resources that this great country lends until everybody has it. You know, nobody has it, is what I'm concerned. New York Times says over the last two years, 70 African-Americans have died similarly to George Floyd. If you had to put a number on that unscientifically, is it, is it right? Is it double that? Well, you know, I don't have any numbers to dispute that or any numbers to support it. I can say in my mind's eye, I would say it was probably more than that, you know, because I can just think of so many that even happened after George Floyd. You know, you can look at cases, you know, probably at least 10 or 15 that have happened since then. Not necessarily uh, black men or women that have died by having a knee suffocate them out. But, you know, unarmed shooting by, you know, uh, by law enforcement, et cetera. You know, I, it, there's at least 10 cases that have happened since Floyd. And so I would have to say over two, two years, if I were to take that number, you know, and, um, and factor it out, it'd probably be in the hundreds for sure. If you want to change anything legally, what are the one or two, two, one or two things that would make the biggest difference? Well, that's probably above my pay grade uh, because if I could, in fact, come up with that formula, I'd probably be a lot more important than you or I think I am. And to say that, you know, I, I think, again, it's going to come down to you know, one of the first layers will be more compassion on the part of everybody, you know, getting back to a place of normality when it comes to humility, sensitivity, you know, unity, all those all those adjectives, adjectives, you know, that define a moral compass, a good moral compass, uh, bridging that gap, you know, getting people to just realize we're all in this damn thing together. That's going to start the conversation. The other thing to realize is that all cops are not white anymore. This is 1950 Bull Connors, you know, Alabama, Mississippi type stuff. There are black policemen out here. I have many family members at high levels, you know, in, in law enforcement. Uh, I have a cousin who's the chief of police in Berkeley. Uh, my uncle was the first chief of police, black, I should say, both of them, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, uh, black 
uh, chief of police in University City. I've got a high-ranking cousin right now in University City. I've got cousins in the FBI. I've got cousins in the CIA, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's no longer just a black and white issue, but it, you know, I guess the irony is you don't have a, you don't have a big number of African-American or black cops killing unarmed black men. You know, I think that's more than coincidence. I also think you don't have a big number of black African-American cops killing white men or white women. That didn't happen. And so to your point, I would say the first thing is sensitivity, you know, bridging the gap, trying to bring up more unity amongst everybody, all our citizens. Of course, that won't happen with everybody. You got people who are predisposed to be racist, prejudiced, you know, and not to be like 45, but that's on both sides. But obviously, if you're predisposed to rate, to being very prejudiced and you're African-American, normally, that's something that's a result of, of being pragmatic. You know, that's a reaction. As opposed to just growing up in an environment where you're taught to hate people who haven't done anything to you just because they look a different way. The term defund police to me seems a misnomer. Thoughts? I agree. I think they could have come up with better wording. And I'll follow up with that with another phrase that gets... It, I think gets misunderstood. Uh, defunding police, they could probably use a better term like reallocating resources or reallocating the dollars that go into solving crime. Yeah, I think that would, and if there is a word that would be descriptive of, you know, going in and redoing a budget so that it doesn't necessarily always go to a police response. In other words, you know, funding mental health issues more or, you know, uh, social work issues whereby you don't always need to call a policeman, you know, or a first responder. Because if you've got somebody in there working, you know, and, and, and doing good work, you know, whether it be in mental health or, or whatever, you know, to help solve an issue that could be solved without, you know, a a law enforcement officer who say is not skilled in that area, who's more skilled in shooting somebody than he or she may be in understanding somebody, you know, and then maybe more skilled in de-escalating a situation than taking joy in a situation that escalates and knowing you've got the ability to snuff somebody out. You know, I think, you know, when, when you look at a big picture, they could come up with a better word than defunding the police. Because again, that creates another dog whistle. They want to take the police out of there. That's not true. That's certainly anybody with you know with half a brain realizes that. But the ability to to dummy down and to get their message to dumb people who are have significant numbers. One thing that I will you know I will I will I will give you know the current administration credit for. They do a very good job of that dog whistle whisper and dumbing down the message so that it resonates in that 1950s we don't want our schools integrated you know type of uh, uh, type of message if you will to follow up on that I think you know the, the message of black lives matter is, is kind of the same thing and not to open my kimono too much but I, I think I'm going to come up with a new slogan and I'm going to copyright it. And all you got to do is Black Lives Matter, parentheses, T-O-O, parentheses, close. Black Lives Matter, too. Very simple. I mean, it's a good point because when Michael Brown and that whole thing happened, people just went nuts. Blue Lives Matter, Pink Lives And it just got lost in really the conversation so let's go back to where we are today. That's where I got a little morsel of hope. I don't think the message is getting convoluted. I think people are staying on point. Yes, and to your point, it's funny that you mention that because only when the notion of Black Lives Matter come up does the notion of Blue Lives Matter and Pink Lives Matter 
But when you come up with the notion of blue lives matter, there's no pushback on some other lives matter. You know, it's only when black lives matter that blue lives, pink lives, all lives matter. You say blue lives matter, crickets. Hmm. Crickets. Do you have an opinion? Of course you have an opinion. Let's talk about statues. You know, there's a swell now where people are tearing down Christopher Columbus statues. They want to change the name of the city, St. Louis. What are your thoughts? Let's, let's keep it simple. What are your thoughts when they want to tear down Christopher Columbus statue? Well, you know, my thought is this. If, if something offends you, there should be a forum. They have a civil discussion on why that is and why it may not be a good idea to have a big-ass statue up there to remind you of somebody who's done offensive claims to your race or your gender or to your religion or whatever. I think that's a discussion that needs to be had. You know, the notion of Confederate statues, people embrace slavery, etc. Why should I have to go past that and be reminded of it? I have to explain that to my kids. I shouldn't. So you can take all those damn statues and put them in a museum somewhere. By the same token, you know, I, I like to speak to Irish. You'll never see a statue of, of Hitler, Himmler, Goebel, any Nazis anywhere except in museums. Not in a public forum, any place on this damn planet. You tell me why. I can't. I mean, here are the two extremes that I have in my head. And, and by the way, Chuck, having a good time, man. Obviously, Berlin Wall, it's down because it represented horribleness. Yes. This is where I get confused. If you're Native American, the arch is a horrible monument because it represents the genocide of what Jefferson did with the Louisiana Purchase. And I love the arch. So that's where I get confused. Well, you shouldn't get confused because you're not a Native American. You know, um, you're intellectual. Lee, you intellectually can can analyze that piece, but there has not been an outcry on the part of Native Americans yet regarding the arch, and there had not been an outcry regarding Confederate statues until recently. They suck. They need to go somewhere. You know, and the, the other thing about that is, you know, it's normally white males who have a problem with political correctness when as a black male, I've had to be politically correct my whole damn life. Uh, my grandfather had to be more correct. He could get his head blown off justifiably, you know, according to the law. Our father, somewhere in the middle. But we've always had to be politically correct. Always. So it's only white males, by and large, who are like, I don't see any problem with it. That's because it does nothing to affect you negatively i mean your lens is not the same but to me like the redskins i think it's, it's been far too long that they've had that damn name you know the redskins you know the arch is more soft, subtle i don't i think what you just said about the arch and jefferson expansion and the louisiana purchase etc most of those dumpkins don't even know anything about that man they were in shock class when you were studying history and so they don't even know what that represents meaning the people visit the arch. <clears throat> now, Native American, if they have a problem with it, I think it's worth talking about. But I also don't think that that Saracen statue is going anywhere anyway soon, nor do I think the city of St. Louis is going to have a new name anyway soon. Not in our lifetime. If you had two cents, Delmar Divide. I'm not a big fan of calling it the George Floyd Boulevard. Thoughts? There's a couple of things. Uh, at work there in, in what you just said. Number one, you know, Portland Place is one of the more exclusive places in St. Louis. Uh, I live on Kingsbury, which is uh, about two blocks west of there. And so it's on the same side of Del Mar, on the quote unquote good side of Del Mar. You know, um, if they're talking about renaming Del Mar, you know, it goes all the way from, I guess she's probably I don't even know what Delmar starts. I guess it starts in Midtown around Brandon or thereabouts. 
and goes to West County, or at least until uh, goes to like the, what would that be, uh, Bottom, or whatever street in New City. Man, I can't even think of that. Dillman, maybe Dillman or one of those. I say all that to say, if they're talking about naming the whole Delmar after George Floyd, I don't know. I guess that's a discussion. And who was Delmar, by the way? What does he represent? You know, was he a bad guy? Was he a good guy? Who knows? But if you're talking about trying to somehow, you know, eliminate the disparity between one side of Delmar and the other side, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, good Lord, if you're talking about like the McCloskey house, you know, for example, that house is approximately two blocks from Delmar and Kings Highway. They're in Westmoreland and Kings Highway, or Portland Place in Kings Highway. Their immediate neighbor on the other side of their wall is a reform, you know, Jewish congregation. And then across from there is another church. But you're getting to Delmar. And on the other side of Delmar, yes, it, it, it gets bad pretty quick. But if all of a sudden you're going to try and figure out a way to, to get some, some type of, uh, you know, uh, I guess equality or equal you know, socioeconomic standing between a house that's, that's maybe worth 25000 and a house is probably worth $6 million, I, I don't understand how naming changing the name of a street is going to have an effect on that at all. Um, I just don't. I don't have an answer for that. So I watch Driving Miss Daisy, liking Morgan Freeman. I'm enjoying the movie. Are you sitting there and you're just pissed? That's another one I've seen. I don't, I'm, I'm not a big movie guy, um, but I know the, the pretext. The pretext. And, you know, I'm more pissed at the fact that that was such commonplace. You know, uh, my mother, my grandmother, God rest her soul, was a domestic, you know, clean, uh, a very wealthy white family, the Bixby's, cleaned their house and was their shit servant, for lack of a better term, even though she went home every night. And I didn't realize that until I got older, like, you know, because she would bring home big shrimp after the party and we'd have shrimp and you know, uh, their grandchildren's leftover Lacoste shirts and expensive stuff, and I would gladly don it, you know, at the time. She encouraged me to play tennis very early on. I was exposed to golf, you know, swimming and all that, but I didn't realize what precipitated all that. And it was because she was their quote-unquote servant. It's despicable to think about that. Uh, but it was a fact because during her day when she was growing up, in Missouri, you know, black people weren't allowed to go, but you know, to a certain level of uh, of education. So you did what you had to do to make ends meet. And so the notion of Mrs. Daisy pisses me off. And and getting even more pissed off is like today. If you and I were to get into a car in about three, no, four hours, say and go down Old Warson, a lit singer, you'll still see black women standing out there waiting on whatever form of transportation to take them back to the city because they've been out there cleaning white people's houses. Who for thought? You know, everybody's going to make a living, but yeah, you would imagine it, it just, it wouldn't look the same 50 years later than it looks now. Right, but it still does, pretty much. And, and the reason I say that is because that happened to me a couple months ago. And I almost stopped. You know, because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this woman is, some of these women are like 70, 80, where are your kids? How come you still have to work, number one? And why are you still working for Miss Daisy? But that's not my business. Right. It's not my business to ask them individually, but collectively, you know, I would ask anybody who employs those old black women, why are you doing it? And they will say, because I'm trying to keep them fed, as opposed to I'm perpetuating, you know, a an institution because her mom used to clean my mom's house 
and she was always alone. So that's kind of how they've been indoctrinated. Let that go, man. You know, let that go. That, that needs to end. And so Mrs. Daisy does piss me off. But so does Morgan Freeman. He's an idiot. <laughs> All right, then. Do you know much about Prude Igo? You know, I know of it from a historic perspective. In fact, I have it, and I'll, I'll send it to you. There's a, there was a K, KETC presentation on, on, on the projects in Prude Igo. And I watched that. And it's interesting, you know. Uh, it seems to me that that set our city back a bunch. It, it, it probably did. You know, I won't say it didn't. Uh, stacking human lives, you know, is never, to me, a good thing when it's federally subsidized housing. About the same token, you know, I have friends who live in New York on the 40th or 50th floor who pay $20,000 a month in Chicago, paying all that money to live stacked up. And so what's the, what's the precipitating factor that makes that bad? Well, it makes it bad because, you know, you've got welfare coming into effect during those days that, that, that dictated if a man's in the house, you can't get as much money and this and that, so the man would have to run in and out. Then you get into the issue of no strong male uh, figures in the house with these kids growing up so they don't have a fear of God. and you know, just a whole litany of, 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 of side effects, you know, that were negative. That the, the, you know, the, the flip to that is I had never seen white people in projects until I went to Boston. I had never seen that. Were they different? No. They were poor, aggressive, mean, one little freckle-faced, redhead, Irish kid. This is over in an area near Watertown in Boston. Uh, which, which is, you know, more industrial. And they had the tall fence. And the kids called me the N-word. He's probably all like eight years old. Freckle and red, orange hair. Yeah. I said, I will come through that gate and kick your ass, you little, you little SOB. I'll go get my brother, Jimmy. Go get him. Go get your uncle. Go get all of them. I'll wait. And I pissed off. And then I'm like, I think for a minute, I'm, I'm arguing with an eight-year-old kid. I don't know what the hell he's doing. But he's a product of that environment being stacked on top of each other, hating somebody who they think is responsible for their horrible substandard of living. But it was just like it, it would mirror, you know, the people who were pissed off in Prairie And think of this. You know, my wife's from New York City. And so... They still have projects that are high-rise like that. And they don't operate like that, though. You know, there's, there's a genuine uh, kinship, camaraderie, almost like a badge of honor. I grew up in the so-and-so. You know, I grew up in uh, 125th and Lenox, you know, in the ABC, you know, uh, projects. They call them co-ops up there. But at any rate, there's more pride, I think, up there. So what happened to St. Louis? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm not real well-versed in human dynamics, but it was not a good idea, and it did not work out. Lecle Town was a little better, but that's gone, too. So I have to remember to send you that link, if I can remember. Perfect. We had elections in November. Two-part question. Is Biden good enough to change things, or is he just good enough to stop the bleeding? I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, because if you stop the bleeding, that's changing things, number one. And as bad as things are now, I would take, I would take anybody, just about anybody. I mean, I can't think of a, a worse individual outside of maybe Lester Maddox. Cheney might be equally as bad, Dick Cheney. But I cannot imagine anybody worse. And so I'll say Biden, number one, has you know, a number of redeeming qualities, you know, working in his favor. Number one, he worked for a black man for eight years. Not too many people in the world can say that. Uh, and so he at least has the humility to work for African-American, a true African-American. This dad was from Kenya. His mom was from Kansas. 
you know. So, um, and then I'll, I'm going to circle back to that original question you asked me after this. But at any rate, I think Biden has equality. He has humility. Uh, he's considering a female running mate, which I would not have encouraged him to do because I think we need everything. We don't need any, any like, you know, independent variables in this, in this deal. Uh, I, I, I was for Bloomberg. You know, uh, that would have been another white male. Uh, there's approximately 8 million Jewish people in this country. I think a significant number of them would have supported uh, Bloomberg just because of that. But when you get into the issue of African-American females or black females, let's use the word black, because Kamala Harris is not African-American. She's uh, Asian-American. Her mother is from India, I believe, or her father, one or the other. And so that's kind of rolling the dice in the fact that not all African-American males are in support of a female. You know, we got some misogynists in our ranks, too. You know, old school black preachers and what have you who don't see women having a defining role in the church. That exists. And so you're rolling the dice there a little bit. That said, I think Biden has the, has, has the equipment to make a considerable change. And the biggest one will be humility and compassion. And that'll go a long way in efforting other changes. Uh, real quickly, you asked me about the term African-American or black. You know, uh, I happen to have a significant, I, I did two of the uh, DNA tests. I have a significant uh, amount of, uh, of uh, African blood in me, Northern Africa, Eritrea, uh, Ethiopian. That's my second largest strain of uh, ethnicity, second largest percentage. And the first, believe it or not, is Irish. I found out I was 22% Irish. But it explained a lot. It explained why I can golf better than I can hoop. You know, I probably drink too much at times, and I can't dance that well. And so it described a lot. <laughs> it kind of brought a lot of things into the bubble of sense. You know, that, that, that makes sense. I'm 22% Irish and 20% Tamaric, I believe, is, 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 the, is the ethnicity. And then it goes down to Scottish, Welsh. Uh, I got a small percentage of Somalia and then 5% Ashkenazi Jewish. Last question, Chuck. Not sure. fair. So if the answer is, I don't know, then the answer is, I don't know. You, you've proven over the long term that what you do, you do very well. Is there something that you hope 18-year-old African-Americans in the future, near future, don't have to put up with that you had to put up with? Sure. Systemic racism. Systemic racism. You know, which, you know, despite my so-called success and ability to to swim through that, it shouldn't exist. Wherever I've gotten in life was despite the system, not because of it. And it's often been argued by contemporaries, you know, who are not of color. Well, look at you, Chuck, you've got more than me. And I asked them, well, maybe that's because I work harder and I'm smarter than you. You ever think of that? As opposed to You've gotten more than me because the system, you know, is more welcoming to an African-American than it is to poor white guy. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so, you know, the 18 and under African-American males, I would hope that the burden of systemic racism would be a lot lighter for them as we go on uh, because... I had to deal with it, you know, and their parents, these 18 year olds, their parents didn't have to deal with it because they're, they're contemporaries of mine as much as my parents had to deal with it and as much as their parents had to deal with it even more. And if you keep going back a generation or two, that generation was free labor. They couldn't even amass assets, no less go to college. 
you know. And so that's what I would hope. I would hope that, and I would hope that there's more hope for those 18-year-olds coming up. And, again, I was referring back to black or African-American. Lest we forget, all blacks are not African-American. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, Sharice Theron, Sharice Theron and Gary Player are African-Americans. Food for thought. Food for thought. Good conversation. Hope everything's good with you. You too, buddy. You know, we, 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 we've come a long way. You know, I, I can remember being at your wedding. How long have how long you been married? See, Becca's 22, so 23. That's incredible. I can remember that. And I, I remember what I bought you. You may or may not still have it. But it was a Sun Tea Maker because you wanted it. And it was on your list. <laughs> I looked down and it's like, what would I want out of all this stuff? You know, steak knives, eh. You know, freaking silverware, these plates, or mats, or you know, I've been married twenty-four years, which means I was married before you. I'll be married twenty-four years in November, and we've got you know all those fancy plates. I'm sure they cost a ton because we got so many Tiffany boxes or whatever, you know, blue boxes. We still have them in the garage, and I'm looking at this stuff, and it's like I don't think we've ever eaten off of any of this stuff. But I would guarantee you that you had some of that tea. I 1,000% did. And what's That's funny right. is, now I'm thinking about my stories with you. We're having lunch. <laughs> I think I'm going to like ask you if you want to go to the wedding. But you owned a glove company of some kind. And you're, <laughs> you're selling cake, man. But you're on this call with like Malaysia. And you're talking about... This glove factory that you've got. You know, you've got a great memory. And that's why I have not been as successful as I could have been. But if I had hold off, if I if I had held off selling that damn glove company until about three months ago, we wouldn't be talking, Ollie, because my number would be non listed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> I sold too quick, brother. I sold too quick. Yeah, you've got a great memory. A buddy of mine, Chris Kersey, and I uh, got that deal because uh, I used to work for 3M, and I'd go to St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota all the time, and Chris was a banker up there, and he had a buddy who started importing these gloves and selling them to hospitals, you know, and uh, I guess at the time, what, Rite Aid or one of these, like, Walgreens-type chains in the, uh, in, in the mid, you know, mid-north, mid-north, and... And so Chris was like, man, he's making them. I'm like, well, hell, what's it cost to get in? I think we had to come up with like maybe $5,000 or something. Like, well, hell, I got $5,000. We got in and started making some, actually some pretty good money. And that's what afforded me taking that three grand a month for three months. You're doing the CBD thing? Oh, that's part of it. That's part of it. Uh, I work for a company called Zen Agriculture. And so we do, uh, we do design, build, energy, compliance, testing, you know, uh, different things, and, and big-time consulting in the medical marijuana space in five states, uh, 14 offices, uh, 615 employees. Uh, we also have QBC Ag, uh, which is our consulting arm, uh, where we do sell CBD products, um, but everything we do is either medical or CBD. No recreational. What's that going to look like in five years? Which? The whole CBD thing. Because it seems like they're just adding more products and more products. Yeah, well, products are different from the cathartic effect of, the, of, of CBD. You know, uh, different CBD makers, you know, tend to hone in on one particular aspect. Uh, what we sell is a beverage that's water that tastes like water, believe it or not, and has a bunch of medicinal uh, medicinal qualities. It's a full spectrum, meaning it does not isolate one particular malady that it concentrates on. You have different companies say, well, this cures arthritis, this cures this, this cures that. Ours is like a multivitamin, you know, where it's just a full spectrum bottle. It has to have less than 0.03% THC in it, you know, uh, so it doesn't get you high but it does give you kind of a body high, 
you can drink this stuff and take a drug test while you're drinking it and pass it because it has, you know, again, trace THC in it. And it's also legal per the farm bill of uh, 2019, uh, I guess around November of 2019. It's legal in every state of the union. And so you can transport it against state lines, et cetera. Uh, formerly Zen has been around about 12 years and we only deal with medical, but you can't take marijuana in any form that has THC in it across state lines. Ergo, we, we operate in five states, uh, Washington State, Colorado, Oregon, California, and Alaska. Uh, I've been with them four and a half years. Uh, I've been CEO for three, about three and a half of those four and a half years. And uh, very happy with the, th the way things are going. I'm moving actually uh, from LA though. Uh, got a beautiful home in Hollywood Hills. It just got sold, thank God. Um, but I didn't really want to sell it, but I got an offer. I couldn't refuse. I'm moving up to uh, Santa Barbara. How much longer before you hang it up, man? Shoot, I don't know when. The, when I guess when the, I guess when the Undertaker comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't see a day before that for sure. You know, um, I signed though. To be honest with you, I signed three-year contracts at a time. Uh, I'm in year two of my most recent one. Uh, well, year one and a half of my most recent. So I got another year and a half before I even have to look at it. But quantitatively. I would say if I can get to that big number of about 20 large, I probably won't be as anxious to, to, to get up and do anything. If I can get about 20 million uh, banked up liquid, I could probably rest a lot easier. I, I'd, I'd probably be a lot tamer and wouldn't be worried about beating somebody up in competition. So Yeah, 20 million makes your, you know, your, your sleep a little easier. Don't have to worry yeah. about funny things. I think that's a good number. So maybe if I get that number here in the next three to five years, I could, I could say, yep, I'm done. I, I don't think I want to share my number with you. <laughs> it's it's well, a bit south of 20. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought it might be a lot larger. <laughs> that's like you. This might blow up. Everybody might want a piece of me. You never know. Hey, it happened to me, man. I thought I was going to put. You know, I was at Fox Sports, you know, I've been there 18 years and had a pretty, well, I had a great job. I mean, people were pissed off when they heard I was leaving and didn't tell them about it. I had probably one of the best jobs, in, definitely one of the best jobs in St. Louis, one of the best jobs in the country, you know, and I chose them. It was a long way from that three grand a month in the, in the white pages for sure. But that said, I just thought I was going to, I knew I wasn't going to have to take too many more chances, you know, and pull a, pull a driver out of my bag of tricks and, you know, you know, try and swing for the fences. I, I figured, you know, I could just chip and putt and, you know, putt for par and I'd, I'd be good. And then all of a sudden this opportunity came up and who knew, you know, but it, it's a good life, man. Very blessed to, to be here and blessed to be a friend of yours. You T going Cardinals and Royals today at three? Am I what? Are you T-voting Cardinals and Royals today at three? I doubt it. Um, you know, the, the wild thing about me, I'm, I'm kind of a media, a, a media nut in the fact that my wife, God love her. By the way, that woman who turned me on, I never finished that. The woman who turned me on to the industry is now my wife of almost 24 years and the mother of our 21-year-old daughter. And she's no longer in media. <laughs> you know, and she is in a way. But, but that said, you know, she afforded me, I guess last week or so, this amazing fire stick where I get every local television channel in the world. No, not in the United States, in the world. And I mean everything from Albuquerque in the United States to Wyoming. Every ABC, Fox, NBC, CBS, you know, uh, my 46 or whatever, every one of them in the country. And then when I go to local by country, I get everything from freaking you know, Albania to Zambia, every one of them in all their stations. And I get every sport that's taking place in each one of those countries. And every old television series 
like I, I like the future, even that's a little older than me and you. But I like that. And the man from Uncle, and I can, you know, go in my office right now and cue any of that stuff up and watch any episode I want to in the world. So I don't have to TiVo anything because all I've got to do is if that game is on at 3P Central Daylight Time, I could probably find it on one of the sports channels in Hawaii five hours later. And what is a fire stick? Yes, Amazon Fire Stick. Well, it's a technology. It's called F-I-N-E-X. And he pays 25 bucks a month. By the way, I'm not doing an advertisement for them. You can cut this out. <laughs> but, yeah, because I don't come that damn cheap. But at any rate, it's called F-I-N-E-X. You can go online and look it up. I got the guy who can hook you up. $25 a month, and you get all this stuff. It, it's, un, it, it's changed my life. Because I like to look at news, particularly L.A. news, uh, Colorado Springs news, um, Tacoma, uh, Seattle, and Spokane, uh, Medford, and Beaverton, Portland, Oregon, and then a bunch of them in Southern and Northern California. Uh, so I can see what's happening in those markets and figure out, you know, how we're working in those markets. So it's nice to, you know, if a, if they got a car accident or something, or a main broken or something, you know, I like to be able to get that news quickly as opposed to having an employee call me in and, you know, make an excuse eight hours later for something that happened eight hours before. And, hey, we're not going to be able to do this. Like, wait, that happened eight hours ago. I just saw it on the news. Get out of here. But we, we never had that happen. We've got great employees. <laughs> you know what? I'm glad we wrapped it up this way. We, we were yeah. being serious. We were talking about important issues. And then when we thought we were done, we let our guard down and we just started bullshit. Well, that's the way we always have been, Ollie. You know, this is your podcast, Jill. This is the only time we've really ever been quote-unquote formal. But other than that, I think our relationship was precipitated and certainly is exacerbated by humor and the levity of it all, man. Because uh, at the end of the day, we've both been very lucky. You know, I learned a lot from you. Uh, people thought you were kind of strange. <laughs> You know, and I like strange guys because I'm kind of strange my damn self, you know. And as far as success goes, you know, I think you were probably the most successful guy at Fox, I mean, at uh, KFNS, you know. And uh, certainly I like to pride myself as a close second, you know, later on down the line. So, you know, we, we've been together a long time, and I look forward to many more years of, uh, of friendship. As well I do too, Chuck. Be good, man. Thank you, brother. Be good. And another one for the books. Hope you enjoyed it. Maybe spurred some conversations. Don't forget to subscribe. You can check out Chuck's St. Louis 7 on YouTube, where I ask him seven questions only a St. Louisan can answer. Search OT with Oliver on YouTube to see all our other St. Louis 7 episodes. Next episode on OT is a must-listen. Number one New York Times author and renowned speaker, John O'Leary. What a story. I don't want to spoil it. John O'Leary Inspires.com. If you want to peek behind the curtain and you thought you already heard some great Jack Buck stories. See you Monday. So as we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, salam.